Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 6, 2021. Fungi are not exactly household items for most of us. Of course, some of us eat mushrooms, a few of us go mushroom hunting, but there's a lot more to the huge kingdom of life known as fungi. We'll hear more about the growing use of fungi in ecological cleanup, drug development, and in the growing grassroots, if we can apply that term to fungi, popularity of grow-it-yourself mushroom kits. But first, some of the recent news in science. Migrating birds travel thousands of miles in the spring to reach their summer nesting grounds. They need wetlands along the way. Here on the Front Range, most natural marshes and shallow ponds have been destroyed. Open water is more common now in reservoirs. They aren't as good for wildlife as natural streams and ponds, plus they allow the expansion of suburbs. The loss of natural habitat is a big reason why bird populations are plummeting. The loss of habitat is a big reason why many environmentalists are still fighting the expansion of gross reservoir. Many birds make do with reservoirs during spring migration. Recently, Boulder naturalist Scott Sievers and Ruth Carol Cushman spotted a very rare bird at Erie Reservoir in Lafayette. There was a Harris's sparrow down here where we parked by my blue car. Well, it's just like so surprising to see it because we just don't expect to see one. It's a very unusual sparrow here in Boulder County, so you get excited anytime you see it. It's got a very pretty pink bill as well as a handsome black bib. It's a rather large sparrow. Mostly they winter in the central Great Plains, and then they travel back to the Taiga forests of Canada to breed. So as we got out of our car, it popped up and it was right here on somebody's backyard fence. Maybe they have a bird feeder because they will come to bird feeders. And then it hopped over into some ornamental spruce trees and it looked just like it was meant to be there. It was so pretty. I wanted to pull up the Harris Sparrow song on my iPhone in the Sibley Birds identification app so I could see what I'm listening for. Very plaintive whistle. Yeah, I heard it respond. Now, I don't normally recommend doing this, but since we're not in breeding season and this bird isn't going to nest here, it's okay to do some Sibley Birds identification app, what they call playback response, and to see if it responds to its song. But please don't do this in a bird's nesting habitat because you're taking away from the time that they need to spend gathering food or protecting their territory. Come over to the east side of Erie Reservoir and you'll be away from 287, which is pretty noisy. Just come down Arapahoe Road a little further from 287, a little further east, and take the first left onto Beasley Drive and then turn onto Billington Drive and you'll end up right at the park. Scott Sievers and Ruth Carol Cushman are Boulder naturalists. They recently spotted a very rare Harris Sparrow on a suburban backyard fence near Erie Reservoir in Lafayette. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. Thank you.
Fungi are fundamental to life. In their roles as decomposers, they're crucial to the formation of soils and sustenance of ecosystems. My guest today, Doug Birand, explores the emerging mycological community who are exploring and advocating for the fungal capacity to remediate contaminated landscapes and waterways, provide food and medicine, and demonstrate how humans might live in equitable and sustainable accord with nature and with each other. Welcome to the show, Doug. I have finished reading your book, In Search of Mycotopia, and absolutely loved it. It's it's not just about fungi. It's about a lot of other stuff, and hopefully we'll get to cover a number of high points. But we can just start off by talking about fungi, and you can tell us a little bit about them. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm glad that you enjoyed the book. Um, it's got uh, myco in the title and fungi in the subtitle, and it's you know obviously about mushrooms and fungi, but it's really about the people who are um, gathering around them and working with them in new and interesting and promising ways. Um, but a lot of that is based in just what fungi are and what they do in the world. Um, and the shortest way to put it is that they're just a vast kingdom of life that has gone largely unexplored, underappreciated. And uh, that's really too bad because they are also fundamental to the functioning of ecosystems on this planet. Our lives depend on fungi. Every bit as much. I'm sorry to interject, but um, there's been so much stuff that's been coming out in the last decade about how critical they are to hold ecosystems together, how they interdigitate with all plants, essentially. Mm. And um, so I know that's not an area you really cover in this book, but we can just stress that. And that kind of gets to your point that you make in the book of how many people think, ah, yeah, fungi. <laughs> right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think I do touch uh, for a moment on uh, endophytic fungi, which uh, right. is what you're alluding to. And yeah, they, they are just entangled with everything. Uh, all plants, they're in our bodies. They're, they're just the su- part of the substrate of life. And uh, I think once people start recognizing that, um, along with you know the fact that they're nutritious and delicious and there's medicinal value and all these other kind of applied mycology aspects, that yuck factor starts to to get into more of a wow factor or a hmm factor. Right, right. And I, I think in terms, just in terms of the basic biology, you know, it was not appreciated for a long time because people lacked the equipment that fungi grow, or many fungi anyway, grow through these really tiny microscopic threads that um, travel through all kinds of different materials. Like you said, plants, the soil, they're some of the best decomposers in the world. And so it's all those kind of aspects that you bring together in the book in terms of the different groups that are using them. And I was so excited to see that it's this burgeoning community of mycophiles in the world today. Um, So do you have a favorite, and you talked about all these different, oh, mushroom festivals and conferences and things that you went to. Do you have a favorite? Hmm, That's a tough one. And they're all so colorful and fun and um you know off the off the beaten trail as far as my life experience is concerned but um i think just you know given the 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 arc that my journeys took me through and and kind of the themes and and uh, i guess message of the book if there is one that, that i arrived at um i would have to point to the poc fungi community uh, gathering in san diego or what they would call unceded kumeye territory 
And, you know, it is what it sounds like. I mean, a group of BIPOC people who, who gathered in that place around fungi, ostensibly around fungi, but really it, it turned out to be a, you know, an opportunity to build community and community resilience and to form connections that, you know, afterwards, it was right before COVID, um, you know, lockdowns began uh, last year. So uh, it turned out that that community had become uh, the basis of a lot of like mutual aid. And um, to me, the, the, the most exciting thing for all of the, you know, opportunities to maybe break down contaminants in our landscapes and waterways or provide food and all, again, these applied mycology things are all very exciting to me. But that was an instance of what I think is the most exciting aspect of all of this, which is how fungi are inspiring people to come together and to talk about larger problems or social issues that they need to address. And fungi yeah, yeah. is sort of a symbol for that. Yeah, there's such a metaphor in yeah. the fungal lifestyle in terms of connectedness and right. um, remediation that can be transposed into the human communities. And I loved it that you, um, you know, took that message from the, the different groups that are getting excited. And there's so much citizen science going on. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really exciting aspect of science these days. And there was a, a young man that you um, spent some time with believe he lives in the southeast who's mm. doing just amazing science work with um genotyping of different fungi and growing fungi which sounds to me i've never done it but i'm intrigued mm -hmm. by it it sounds like it could be a little challenging yeah well i'm uh i believe you're, you're referring to william padilla brown who yeah. um who lives in pennsylvania and uh is yeah it was just a remarkable character in, in a number of ways i mean fungi is just one kind of aspect of, of his sort of and again it's a it's a, it kind of rides the metaphorical line like he's doing what he uh characterized to me as a sort of social permaculture he's trying to kind of um generate systems in his community that that sort of mimic the holistic uh cycles that he's observed in nature and one of the things he's doing uh to that end is trying to spark a local economy um in one case around this really difficult uh, mushroom or fungus called uh, cordyceps which is kind of famous for turning ants into zombies you know it's a it's a very uh, evocative fungus that's also got a lot of medicinal value and is notoriously hard to cultivate because it grows out of insects and um you know in the east there's a lot of uh you know they're grown at large scale and a lot of times by inoculating a lot of insects you know and it's a kind of difficult thing to do as a small grower and uh william and his cohort kind of cracked the code by translating like videos and documents from cultivators in other countries and, and they worked out how to grow these these recalcitrant fungi on uh brown rice basically nutrified brown rice and they've started kicking off an economy um, in this country of people who are taking those methods, improving upon them and providing medicine to their community. Um, there's a, there's a boom market around this, uh, this fungus, which is already worth more than it's weight in gold in some parts of the world where it's harvested, um, just in the wild. So there's that aspect, you know, of, of kind of economics and, and locality, but as far as just growing mushrooms, I mean, it can be difficult. It can also be really interesting. And I just wanted to take the opportunity to mention that if anyone is curious about this stuff, one of the best ways to get acquainted is to grow mushrooms at home. And you can do it with these pre-made kits. You don't really need to do more than mist it occasionally with water. And it's a real eye-opening experience that I encourage everyone to consider. 
Yeah, that's definitely on my list. I hadn't realized there are so many small organizations springing up kind of like mushrooms all over the country <sighs> in order to provide those do-it-yourself kits. And so I'm definitely going to be looking into that. That's great. Yeah, and it's just another dimension of this uh, of these organisms, really, that sort of favors locality. Um, you know, with the exception of like button mushrooms, portobellos, the kind of common pizza mushrooms that you would see. These more specialty mushrooms for culinary or medicinal markets have less, uh, often less uh, shelf stability, and so they sort of automatically favor local uh, distribution and smaller scale. And uh, I find that kind of interesting as well. Right, absolutely. And since you're talking locale and small scale, um, for our listeners, we're in the in the Front Range area in Colorado. I wanted to mention a couple things that you did point out in your book. Um, so maybe you could talk about the Front Range fungi. Oh yeah, in Denver. Yeah, and I um, I don't know if they're there anymore because it's a, a mobile um, operation based uh, in a pair of trailer trucks um, and. You know, they had like holes cut in the side to send bags back and forth and, and like, uh, you know, converted uh, deli refrigerators, you know, used for sterilizers, a real DIY kind of scrappy operation that to me was representative of um, many other operations that are, are just as kind of bespoke and funky um, throughout the country that are emerging because it doesn't take much, you know, frankly, to grow mushrooms. It, it, it depends on the scale and, and the type and uh, all of that. But it's it's actually a pretty simple um, procedure when it comes down to it that makes use of agricultural waste as it's, you know, f as the food for the fungus. So there's like a, a virtuous cycle dimension to it. Um, and that, that was just an example of exactly what we were talking about, a, a market emerging and someone finding a way to make use of their, they, they couldn't afford the warehouse space to that it would take to operate at the scale they wanted to. And so they found a workaround and they used these trailer trucks that they had parked in an industrial back lot outside of Denver. And uh, they were providing to local restaurants and, and food security programs. And um, yeah, it's, it's uh, popping up, like you said, like mushrooms all over the country. They're, uh, yeah, and I love how people are so clever and innovative. It's definitely small scale and, and very countercultural. I was yeah. telling my husband the other day that it reminds me of the hippie movement, you know, when we were kids that, oh, yeah. you know, people were just um, aggregating and doing their own thing and coming up with really clever solutions. And one other local um, application that I think will be really interesting to our listeners is the Coalition for the South Platte that you mm. described, because many of us are familiar with that really horrible fire that went through, gosh, I guess it's about eight or nine years ago now, even yeah. fire. And yeah. <laughs> devastated. I mean, I, I visit that area a lot, and it's still completely burned out. But can you talk about how fungi can be used to rehabilitate those really intense burn areas? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and when I wrote the book, I, th I think the, I, uh, the list I provided of, of most recent extreme, you know, like the hottest and biggest fires uh, is already out of date yeah, <laughs> because exactly. of this last year. So it's a very present issue. Um, and yeah, the Coalition for the Upper South Platte or CUSP and uh, Jeff Ravage, uh, who's um, a coordinator with them, took me on a tour of this project where they are trying to reduce the damage done by fire 
uh, first of all, by changing the composition of the forest to reflect its, its more mosaic-like natural state, which is more resilient to fires, especially crown fires, which um, you know, do what they, like their name suggests, they go across the crowns of the trees and create so much heat that it basically sterilizes the ground underneath and uh, makes it very hard for ecologies to bounce back. And one of fungi's sort of amazing powers and roles in our world is their ability to break down organic detritus and turn it into the soil and makings for new life and to kickstart biodiversity and trophic cycles that, that promote biodiversity. And so the CUSP project was uh, one of taking the logging practices that, that were being used to re, re, uh, rebuild the forest according to its old composition and in, uh, with the wood chips that were generated from that, inoculate those with local fungi um, in a systematic way that would accelerate their breakdown and turn them into soil. And so it was this kind of two-pronged approach to trying to change the composition of the forest and also kickstart ecological action using fungi as the, the catalyst, basically. And I go into detail in the book, but the, the long and the short of it is that, you know, he took me on a tour of these giant piles of wood chips that one set had been inoculated with these fungi, the other hadn't. And it was just immediately clear uh, that the fungi were, were doing their job and you could dig into those wood chips and pull out compost and also mushrooms, which we did. And he took them back and I'm not sure if he cooked them or if he cloned them to <laughs> test them, but... Right. And I was intrigued um, by the fact that you can't really see from the surface. I hadn't realized that because it's so dry on the surface that you won't really see much evidence of fungal growth. So you had to turn the piles over a little bit to see what was going on underneath. Right. Yeah. There's like a moisture horizon. I think they call it the O level. Um, right. And, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, obviously, if something is on the surface, it's going to be exposed to evaporation and heat. And fungi, you know, we, we see their mushrooms, but the mushrooms are just the reproductive organs that sprout up from the body, quote unquote, of the fungus, the mycelium, which is really the the living. Um, I mean, it's all living, but it's the it's the active part, the, the part that's eating and spreading, and and the mushrooms are in service of the promulgation of the mycelium. When, really, when it comes down to it, and so the mushrooms often will will poke up out of the you know, their substrate and, and over the top to, to spread. But in the case of wood chips, you know, maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not the best environment above the, the, the dry chips as far as the mushroom is concerned. Um, I'm not exactly sure why it didn't sprout up above in that case, but it might also just be that the wood chips were too heavy. Yeah, that could be. It, it is curious because um, this, I want to reiterate what you just said, because a lot of people might not be aware of this, that the mushroom is kind of equivalent to a flower in mm. a flowering plant. It's the part of the plant or the part of the organism that is reproducing. And the main body of the organism, in this case, the fungus, is actually underground and not really visible to us. So it's, it's intriguing that a lot of these mushrooms that are responsible for dispersing the spores, which will then travel through the wind or maybe on another on an animal that's traveling by, Mm -hmm. will will result in the um, germination of a new fungal organism. And mm -hmm. that leads me to another issue that you cover, which is the psychedelic mushrooms and how there's so much interest in the medical community, the, the mental health community these days, in terms of using some of the active ingredients 
in those fungi for treatment of various disorders? Yeah, it's a it's a massive and growing field. I mean, there's a, a, a massive and growing uh, market for it in this country for sure, but it's not new. Um, and, you know, in China, for example, uh, it's it's a gigantic industry and and a massive cultural uh, legacy of medicinal mushroom use. But it's making its way over here, I think, in, in large part uh, as a reaction to you know the feelings about the pharmaceutical industry and the access to medicine uh, that you know the the limited access that that kind of reflects other social uh, you know ills of our time. And so there's this uh, opportunity people see. Um, you know, on the one hand, to, to strike at some economic opportunity. Um, one can grow their own medicine, basically, in this way. Uh, you know, I have to put some asterisks here because, uh, you know, I, I will take, say, like reishi mushrooms as part of my kind of regimen, but uh, I, I certainly wouldn't uh, make any recommendation to people medically about it. Or, and, and a lot of the research is still underway as to, like, exactly what the compounds are that, and their you know, their, their health effects and benefits, but there are a lot of traditions around medicinal mushroom use. And um, I think the, the development of new techniques to grow these mushrooms, that's another kind of factor here. Um, you know, a lot of people are learning how to grow mushrooms for the first time and cracking codes like the, the cordyceps mushrooms I mentioned earlier. And so more and more people are learning to grow them and markets are opening up. People are I mean, I, in the book, give an example of uh, the POC fungi community. And, and when I was there, I was, uh, it was at a time my mom was dealing with cancer. And she had a bottle of mushroom pills, in quotes, that her, her mom had sent her. You know, I bought it off TV. And, uh, you know, I read the ingredients and it was really vague and really kind of clearly to me just trying to exploit uh, the, the interest that people have in mushroom medicine or the, you know, the idea that people had heard that mushrooms are a medicinal thing. And uh, at this gathering, I saw reishi mushrooms that had been grown by people there. And you know, the money I paid for them was going to support this community instead of a pharmaceutical industry. And uh, it's not med medical advice and it's not uh, the basis for making decisions on health, but I certainly felt like giving that to my mom uh, redounded to more medicinal value than whatever she had in that bottle. And uh, I think this connects to, I mean, I'm, I'm dancing around the medical question here because it's a field that I'm not really qualified to comment on as far as the medical efficacy of these mushrooms. But to me, it all reflected the value in forming these kinds of communities and the agency that's represented in growing one's own medicine. Right. And mushrooms are a vector for that. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's fantastic that there is this sort of grassroots movement to do that because, like you said, the pharmaceutical industry will co-opt it when they can. And, you know, even as prestigious an institution as the NIH, the National Institutes for Health, is doing national or natural compound surveys and, you know, testing all kinds of different compounds, fungal and other, for medicinal activities as are many pharmaceutical or drug companies right it's great if people can do that for themselves right and i mean touching on the citizen science aspect of it as well um you know i think a lot of the the research being done into medicinal mushrooms obviously is happening at an institutional level but as methods and technologies emerge uh, that make it possible for someone to sequence 
the genetic code of a fungus with a device that they can put in their pocket um, and plug into their computer. Uh, it's it's allowing that sort of investigation to happen on uh, you know a citizen science level, and so yeah, that's uh, again kind of a frontier <laughs> space when it comes to this, but uh, when it comes to fungi, but. I, I think it's it's another aspect of what's most exciting about this to me is that the the involvement of a, a much broader uh, set of people um, to me is promising. Uh, I think it's, yeah, yeah, it's it's so exciting to me as a scientist to see people getting involved at a grassroots level in science. And I, I guess just in closing, we can mention um, another event of local interest, which is the Telluride. Is it called the Telluride Mushroom Festival? That's right, yeah. Yeah, I've been hearing about it for years. I hadn't realized it had gotten so groovy and so exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's exclusive, I think, in, in terms of access, just getting there, you know, and right, right. Paying, paying for the, the accommodations that it requires and, and all that, um, which to me was an interesting tension with these other groups that I, I documented that are like sliding scale and, you know, you sign waivers promising no discriminatory language or behavior. And um, not that that was, you know, uh, encouraged at Telluride or anything like that, but um, I think it's a much more kind of mainstream, in quotes, uh, mushroom, mushroom festival. Um, and yeah, just, a, I mean, there's a, there's a parade, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's not, in it's not behind closed doors kind of thing. And right, uh, right. it, it takes advantage of the incredible fungal biodiversity of that area as well. Uh, people, you know, spend all day out in the woods when they're not at a talk or something or a screening. They're in the, in the forest and the hills around Telluride, picking mushrooms, bringing them back to be identified or cooked. And uh, yeah, that was sort of a, um, through the looking glass experience for me to be sure and I would encourage anyone who's even yeah. curious you can still go to Telluride while it's happening yeah. you don't have to yeah. necessarily be a, a ticket holder to see what's going on there during right. the mushroom festival and from where we're located the access isn't quite so tricky as right. where you are so well we're, we're running out of time Doug but I want to thank you for talking to us and um, wish you good luck with your book and your further explorations into the fungal that was author and fungal enthusiast Doug Berend discussing all things fungi, which he describes in his book, In Search of Mycotopia. You can find the link on the show website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the current executive producer, and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Jefferson Airplane. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.